Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. It's page 747 if you're using one of the hardback ESV Bibles there in the pew in front of you. It'll be helpful if you've got it open as, as we go through and point out particular things. It's Zechariah chapter 6. We've been in Zechariah for several weeks now. We're in the second half of chapter 6. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll pick up with, with chapter 7 and look at that. But here we are in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Um, there's a riddle I remember hearing when I was little, and it says to imagine a scenario where a father and a son are in the car, and they get in a wreck, and it's a bad wreck. And the son gets injured, and they take him to the hospital, and they roll him up, and the surgeon sees the son, and the surgeon says, I can't operate on this boy. This boy is my son. So the riddle is, how does this work, right? I mean, the dad brings the son in, and yet the surgeon says, this boy is my son, so how does this work? Well, the thing is, the surgeon is the mom, right? And the riddle's playing off the idea that there's fewer female surgeons than there are male surgeons. So when you hear a surgeon, most of us instantly think, oh, male. And so that's kind of what the, what the uh, riddle is, is, is playing off of. Well, well, in the Old Testament, in God's people Israel, there were priests and there were kings, but those were always two different things. There was no overlap. There weren't kings in Israel that were priests. There weren't priests that were kings. So those were two different offices. They were mutually exclusive. But in our passage this morning in Zechariah, we're going to see God's plan to ultimately save his people through someone who is not merely a king or somebody who's not merely a priest. He's going to save his people by way of a priest king. So this person that God calls the branch in the book of Zechariah. So, so just like the one hearing the riddle assumes the surgeon can't be the mom, Israel assumed the king couldn't also be a priest. But God tells Zechariah, Zechariah that, that a priest king is exactly who he's going to send. And a priest king is exactly what we need. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 6, 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of uh, Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, so right off the bat, let's let the Lord set up this, this passage for us. So God tells Zechariah to get some gold and silver from these particular guys who he names, Hildai and Tobijah and Jedidiah, who, who are some of the Jewish exiles from Babylon. So remember what's going on here at this point in salvation history. So God, if you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about one ethnic group of people, the whole Old Testament. It's about Israel, Israelites, Jewish people. Now that starts with God choosing Abraham 
back in, in Genesis chapter 12. So Father Abraham, right? So Israel branches out from him. So it starts with Abraham, with God calling Abraham. Well, he grows uh, Israel into this big family. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you all these descendants. I'm going to bless you, but I'm also going to bless the world through you, Abraham. So Israel grows the way the Lord says they would. Well, then the land that they're in, the land of Egypt, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh gets nervous because Israel is getting so big. He gets nervous about that. So he basically puts them under captivity. And that's when the Lord raises up Moses to come in and through the Lord's working to free his people, to bring them out. And the idea is they're going to be brought into the promised land, the land of Canaan. But you might remember this, and this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. It makes sense to us because it's a theme in our lives. The people continue to sin. God saves them, but they don't obey the Lord. So Israel ends up wandering in the wilderness, right, for a generation. But then God fulfills his promise, brings them into the promised land, but they continue to sin against the Lord. Makes no sense, but our sin doesn't make sense either. They sin against the Lord. Well, that's when God starts to raise up this group of people called the prophets. And the prophet's job was to say, come back to the Lord. So it's God's word coming through the prophets saying, repent, reaffirm your trust in the Lord, your love for the Lord, turn from your sin. But, but the people don't. And so eventually God brings about what he had warned them about for generations, which is, hey, I'm going to raise up some enemy nations to bring my judgment and to exile you guys if you don't turn from your sin. But they didn't turn, so that's exactly what happened. So the Assyrians, that nation, comes in and defeats the northern kingdom, what's called Israel. And then the Babylonians come in, and they sack the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Well, Judah gets taken away to captivity in Babylon, but God had promised it's only going to be for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you back into the promised land. That's exactly what the Lord did. So Judah, that had been exiled because of their sin, they're brought back into the promised land, back into Jerusalem. But when they get back, it's not a super encouraging place to be because basically it's, it's not anywhere close to the same as it was before. And the biggest difference was there's no temple. The Babylonians destroyed the temple. And remember, that's, that's the place where Israel would gather to worship the Lord corporately. It was the center of their worship of God. That temple had been destroyed. And as they were thinking about rebuilding it, there's, there's still enemy nations around Israel that are trying to sabotage that project. So it's just not a good situation. People are, just, are discouraged. They're back in the promised land, but they're discouraged. Well, that's what's happening during the book of Zechariah, when Zechariah is prophesying. They're back in the promised land, but they're discouraged. They're wondering what's going to happen next. So in verse 10 of our passage, Zechariah is supposed to go to some of these particular returned exiles. We don't know much about these guys, except that they would have been known, it looks like, because the Lord just says these names to Zechariah, and then he conveys this to the people, and apparently everybody knew who these folks were. So Zechariah, he's supposed to collect gold and silver from these folks, and then he goes to the house of this guy, Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. The family of Zephaniah, they were priests. It's probably significant. So he's going to the house of a priest. And then he takes the gold and silver. We're told what he's supposed to do with it in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He's told to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Okay, so, so that's how this passage is set up for us. It's this symbolic ceremony where he takes the gold and silver, makes a crown out of it, sets it on Joshua, who was the current high priest. And as the Lord explains what this ceremony means, as he explains that throughout this passage, we're, we're going to learn three related things. And this is on the outline. There's an outline there in the worship guide, if that's helpful for you. We're going to learn these three related things. So first, we're going to see we need God's presence more than anything else. Second, we're going to see only a priest king can get us God's presence. And finally, Jesus Christ is the priest king that we need. And then once we see those truths laid out, we're going to look at a few applications that our passage gives us. So, so the first thing we're going to see, we need God's presence more than anything else. So, so you know how in a story there's a problem that needs to be resolved. That has to happen for every story. Or, or else it's, it's not really exciting at all. There's a problem that comes about, and then the story is kind of the rising action and the climax and the falling action. Is that problem getting resolved? Well, well, the Bible is no different, right? It's a story, and one way to describe the story of the Bible is that God's people had his presence. So one way to describe the story of the Bible is around the idea of God's presence. God's people had his presence. Adam and Eve, they walked with the Lord in the Garden of Eden. They had God's presence, but then in Genesis 3, because of their sin, they're put out of the garden. They lose God's presence. And the rest of Scripture, from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, is God's people being given away to get his presence back. That's the problem that God is solving throughout all of Scripture. They had his presence because of our sin. We lost it. And the story of the Bible is the story of God getting sinners back into his presence. Listen to this dichotomy. This is from Genesis 3, verse 8. As a result of their sin, Adam and Eve were told they hide themselves from God's face. So because of their sin, they hide themselves from God's face. Listen to what we're told in Revelation 22, verse 4. God's people will see his face. That's the problem that Scripture is taking care of, that God's taking care of in redemption, redemptive history. And what we see from that is, we need God's presence more than anything else. That's what we need more than anything else. We need God's presence. That's exactly what we see in the book of Zechariah. So the people are discouraged, but what does God do? He, he doesn't come out with a plan to have better economic relations with other countries. He could have done that, but no, that's, that's not really the problem. God doesn't give his people a, a, a lot of food or entertainment. You know, some of the things that we oftentimes run to for comfort you know, when, when things are hard. No, God's main objective is to have the temple rebuilt. Why? So people can have access to his presence because he knows that's their greatest need. God's people in Zechariah's day knew that. They know they need the temple rebuilt. And the Lord told the people in chapter four, he was going to send this guy Zerubbabel. He's the one that the Persians set up as the governor there for the people of, of Israel. God was going to use Zerubbabel to rebuild that temple. Look over at chapter 4, verse 7. We saw this a few weeks ago. And there the Lord says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. He's talking about the top stone for the temple. He's saying Zerubbabel will see the temple rebuilt. Chapter 4, verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also complete it. 
So Zerubbabel, he's the one God says is going to rebuild the temple there in, in Jerusalem. And, and that's their greatest need, to have God's presence. So the question for us is, is, do I believe this about myself? Do I believe this is my greatest need, to have God's presence? And do you believe this is your greatest need, to have God's presence? So we should set it up against these other things. Do you really believe that your greatest need is not to have good physical health? And that your greatest need is not to have food or clothing or a home. Your greatest need is not to be entertained or, or to be emotionally fulfilled. Your greatest need is to have God. And my greatest need is to have God. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3 verse 8. It's a great verse because Paul stacks every created thing in this world on one side of the ledger. He stacks all the good created things of the world on one side, and then listen to what he tells us. Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying, okay, all the created things in the world, if they're all piled up on one side and Jesus is on the other side, I'd rather have Jesus than all of those things. That's a good exercise for us, isn't it? Think about all the good, so many good created things in this world, right? Praise the Lord for them. Uh, think about all those things piled up on one side of a field. Let's say you're in the middle of the field. All the great things in this world piled up on one side and Jesus on the other side. Would we run to Jesus and run away from all these good created things? Well, we should, right? The Lord is what we need. Paul says, I consider everything else, even good things, but compared to Jesus, he considers him to be, to be rubbish. Jesus is better than those things. There's lots of good gifts in this world, but we need God's presence more than anything else. And God's people here in Zechariah, they understood that. That's why they knew it was so important to get the temple rebuilt where they could have access to, to God. But, but here's the second point we need to understand from our passage this morning. We need someone to get us into God's presence. We can't do it on our own. We need somebody to get us into God's presence, and it's a very particular kind of person we need. In particular, we need somebody who is a priest and also a king. We need a priest king. So, so why is that? Right? Why do we need a, a priest and a king? Well, let's start by giving a definition of these two offices. In the Bible, what's a king and what's a priest? And the good news is the Bible's full of explanation of both of those, especially the Old Testament, because Israel had kings and they had priests. So, so what's a king? Well, a king is the one who rules a group of people and rules over a place, right? We know this. That's what a king, and he, he's in control, or the way the Bible says it, he's sovereign. So, so why do God's people need a king? Why does the promised one in our passage need to be a king? Well, it's because the task in front of him is a huge task. Saving God's people and keeping them saved, that's a big task. Look at the task again, verse 13. It is he, this future promised one, it's he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Okay, so this individual, he'll need to, to build the temple, and then he'll need to rule God's people, providing protection and oversight and direction. 
So in order to rebuild the temple and to rule God's people, this person needs to be a king. A king is a ruler. And the future savior, Zechariah says, he needs to be a king. Okay, so what's a priest? Well, in Israel, the priest was the one who took God's people into his presence, right? We, we don't need the Bible to tell us this, but, but we are sinners. You've seen that even this morning, right? Even this morning, and I, well, we haven't been awake for that long, a couple hours. All of us has, have already sinned. And whether it was a sin of not doing something we should have done, loving somebody in a particular way, obeying the Lord in a particular way, or whether it's us doing a thing that God tells us not to do, we've all done those things. All of us have sinned already this morning. And of course, sinners don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. So what we need is a mediator. We need somebody who belongs in God's presence who can get us there. I think I've told this story before, but uh, one of my cousins, he clerked for a justice of the Supreme Court. So I went to the court building one time as I was approaching, a security guard began to approach me quicker than I was approaching because he thought to himself, this guy does not look like he belongs here. And he was right. And my cousin quickly ran out and said, hey, he said the security guard by name. And he said, no, that's my cousin. So he, he's okay. And so I got in, not because of anything about me, but because of Jeff's merits. And Jeff said, no, he belongs with me. Well, that's what the priesthood did. So the priesthood got sinners into God's presence. Now, the priests were still sinners. But in God's grace, he set up a temporary situation whereby the priest could go through these really strict requirements and, uh, and not eating certain things, eating certain things, these ritual washings, sacrificing animals for the priest, so that then the priest could get into God's presence. But... There's many things we could say about this, but we'll just give one uh, really concrete example of what the priest is doing. When the priest entered the temple to go into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, he wore this vest that had a plate on the front of it that had 12 stones there in pouches in that plate. Those stones stood for the 12 tribes of Israel. So all the people basically were represented with those stones. And that's what he would wear as he went into God's presence. You see the symbolism. He is bringing God's people into God's presence. That's what the priesthood was designed to do. He was their mediator. Okay, so it makes sense that we need more than just a king, doesn't it? So the, the king can build the temple, but if the people are too sinful to enter the temple, what good is that? It's just a temple that we can't have access to. And, and on the flip side, the priest can serve in the temple, but he can't keep that temple from being destroyed. That's exactly what the people had seen happen. 586 BC, a few generations before, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. So we need a king to build for God's people and develop God's people and keep God's people. We need a priest king. And that need is exactly what God reveals here to Zechariah and to the people. So so let's see how he reveals this, that we need a priest king. So remember, he's told to collect gold and silver from these folks in the promised land, go to the high priest's house, or go to a priest's house rather, to, to make a crown. Look again at what he's supposed to do with the crown, verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this would have been really unexpected. 
Because the people would have said, why are we putting a crown on Joshua's head? Joshua is not a king. Joshua is a priest. Priests don't wear crowns. That's for a king. Because again, in the Old Testament, in Israel, these were always two distinct offices. You had kings and you had priests, but kings weren't priests. Priests weren't kings. So it's almost like in America, the president of the United States is not going to be in the Senate at the same time. Those two offices are mutually exclusive. You're not going to have somebody in the House of Representatives who's also sitting on the Supreme Court. No, two different offices. That's how it was in, in Old Testament Israel. Men could be priests or they could be kings, but not both. But here we've got this picture from the Lord where Zechariah is supposed to put a king's crown on a priest, Joshua. And this is a prophecy pointing God's people forward. So the crown's being placed on Joshua's head. But, but it's not that Joshua is going to be the king, right? That doesn't happen. Joshua remains a priest. He doesn't become in charge of the people. He's not elevated to the office of king. No, this is like a play where Joshua is the actor who is playing someone else. So it's almost like with our kids, we have buckets of dress-up clothes, and our kids will pull out clothes and put them on and play somebody. They're playing a part. And then they take those clothes off. That's what's happening here with Joshua. He's playing somebody else, somebody down the line. That's why in verse 12, God doesn't tell Zechariah to say to Joshua, you are the man. He could have said that. He doesn't say that. No, in verse 12, we're told, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man. So he's telling Joshua to turn his attention forward. Joshua, behold the man. And it's why the Lord doesn't leave the crown on Joshua's head. If Joshua was going to be the king, they leave the crown on his head. That's not what happens. No, he tells him, the crown's taken off your head. It's going to be put in the temple once the temple is rebuilt as, as a reminder. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So the crown's put on Joshua like a costume as, as he plays the branch, this future savior. But, but then it's taken off. So again, the picture is that Joshua is turning everyone's eyes ahead to, to somebody else. Now look at what he says next, because we've heard it before in Zechariah. Look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So Joshua is playing the part of this individual called the branch. This is the same individual we heard about back in chapter three. So back in chapter three, verse eight, Joshua and the other priests are told that they as the priests are a sign pointing forward to this future servant of the Lord that he calls there in chapter three, the branch. So that part's not new. Becoming savior, the Lord calls him the branch. The thing we learn in our passage, the thing that's new here is that he'll be a priest and a king at the same time. So the future savior, he'll, he'll be a king and just think about how many different ways this is communicated to us in our passage. It's really clear, right? So we've got what we just talked about, the picture of Joshua being given a crown. Kings wear crowns. He'll be a king. That points toward this promised branch being a ruler, a king. But then let's see what, what God promises this future individual will actually do. Verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Okay priests serve in temples, but priests don't build temples. No, that's the work of a ruler. That's the work of a king. 
But, but verse 13, it, it makes it even more explicit. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Okay, so the Lord couldn't be clearer here, right? This is all king language. So the coming savior, he will be a king, but he'll also be a priest. So, so not only is the picture that the crown is on Joshua's head and Joshua was a priest, but look at what the second sentence of verse 13 says explicitly. And there shall be a priest on his throne. So the branch will be a priest. And this branch is one person. It's not two people sitting there. No, it's one person. You've got a priest and a king in one person. And this is where if you're looking at the ESV, one of ours, or if you've got your own ESV, it doesn't do the best job of translating the Hebrew here, I don't think. So remember, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew. What we have here is a, an English translation, but, but it gets across a little bit confused. So in the second sentence of verse 13, the ESV there, it says, and there shall be a priest on his throne. Well, that could make it sound like this is two different people. So the branch is on the throne. He's the king. But then there's this other guy who's a priest who's also on the throne. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew just says, and he, the branch, and he will be a priest on his throne. So that sentence is just a continuation of all the things the branch will be. So the branch is a lot of things. And this is one of the things. He'll be a priest. So in verse 13, we're told the branch will build the temple. He'll bear royal honor, he'll sit and rule, and he'll be a priest. And that's why the ESV has that footnote there. If you look at that, I think it's footnote number four. That footnote there, if you look down there, he shall be a priest. So the idea is there's, there's this coordination of two offices, of priest and king in one person. It's almost like how Jesus is fully God and fully man inside of one person, well, that's the way it'll be here. The future savior will be fully priest and fully king. And those two offices will fit together like a hand in a glove. That's what the Lord's getting at at the end of verse 13, where he says, and counsel and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. Both these officers. Listen to what John Calvin says, 16th century pastor, John Calvin. He says, there shall be peace in this person between the kingly office and the priesthood. But again, all this would have been really odd to the Old Testament Israelite because the two offices of priest and king, they'd always been completely separate offices. There was never an individual that held these offices in Old Testament Israel, but there had been hints in the Old Testament that this is what was coming. There had been some shadows back there. And that actually begins all the way back in Genesis 14. With this mysterious figure, we read about him earlier in Hebrews 7, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek, who interacts with Abraham. So if you've got a Bible open, flip over to Genesis 14, verse 18. It's page 10 if you're using one of our hardback Bibles. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 14, verse 18. Let's see the shadow of this thing, of a future priest king. Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, kind of an odd story, right? But it's picked up later, so we understand it has significance. So what's it have to do with with our passage here in, in Zechariah? What's it have to do with the offices of king and priest? Well, you probably picked up on some of it. Melchizedek was both these things. He's an individual who's a king and a priest. So we're told that he was the king of Salem. So you might know you might know this, you might not. Salem, that comes from the word shalom, peace. That's what the word Salem means, Winston-Salem. Not sure where the Winston part comes from. I should probably know that, I don't. But the Salem part, I can tell you, peace. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. But, but then his name also communicates that because the Hebrew, his name literally means king of righteousness. So it's real clear, Melchizedek, this guy is a king. But then what does the Lord tell us at the end of verse 18 in this passage in Genesis? He was priest of God most high. So while Israel never had somebody that was a priest and a king, they had come across somebody that was a priest and a king. And it's this guy, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was sent by God to point the people forward. We'll make one more stop in the Old Testament before coming back to Zechariah. Flip over to Psalm 110. If you've got a Bible open, Psalm 110, page 476, if you're using one of ours. So we see Melchizedek there in Genesis 14. We see him again in Psalm 110. So this is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, and again, remember in the New Testament, we learn this is David talking about the future Savior. So the Lord, God, says to David's Lord, the future Messiah, So he's talking to the future savior. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We'll stop there. So what office is the Lord promising to the future Messiah in this passage? Well, this is all king language, isn't it? Sit at my right hand, you'll rule, you'll destroy your enemies. Okay, the future Messiah will be a king. But then look at the next verse. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the Messiah won't just be a king. He'll also be a priest. Now look at the next phrase. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just like Melchizedek was a king and a priest, the future Messiah will be a king and a priest And that's exactly who we need to get into God's presence. We need a priest king. We need a builder and protector like a king. We also need a mediator like a priest. And that's exactly what God has provided for us. And this is our third point this morning. Jesus is this priest king who gets us into God's presence. Uh, Listen to our congregational reading again. Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek was a priest king who resembled the son of God. Jesus is the better Melchizedek, the perfect priest king. Listen to verse 12 in our passage. 
and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay, so, so we're starting to get that idea. Jesus, the coming savior, he's a priest and he's a king. But what about this title, the branch? We saw it before in chapter three, see it again here. What's that getting at? Well, the picture is that the coming Messiah will, will be like a small shoot, will be like a, a weed that sprouts up out of what had become clear to everybody was the dead stump of Israel. So we, uh, the, the house that we lived in in Kernersville, big storm that happened in the fall, I don't know, a couple months after we moved in, big tree in the backyard falls over. Well, there was a stump that tipped over, pulled out of the ground, roots were all severed, and we tipped that, uh, that stump back up, looked like a dead stump, and then all of a sudden, this bush starts to grow out of it. Crazy thing, that's the picture here. Israel was dead because of their sin, like a dead, rotten tree stump. But God had promised that out of that tree stump, that dead group of people, a branch will unexpectedly burst out. Listen to our call to worship from Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Okay, so who is this branch? Who's Isaiah, uh, Isaiah ultimately talking about? Well, in our New Testament reading from this morning, Luke 4, 18 through 21, Jesus says these passages in Isaiah about somebody coming who the Holy Spirit will rest on. Jesus makes it clear, those are talking about me. I'm the, I'm the branch. I'm the shoot that comes out of dead Israel. He's the promised branch. And look again at what God tells Zechariah and Joshua, the branch will do. Verse 12 in our passage. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But we need to have some understanding here. The temple that verse 12 talks about the future branch building, that's not the literal temple, mortar and stones there in Jerusalem. That's, that's not what it's talking about. Chapter four tells us Zerubbabel, the governor, is gonna build that temple, and he did. No, the, the temple that the branch is coming to build is a better temple. He's coming to bring a better way to get to God than the way that they had set up under Old Testament Israel. Let's trace this theme of the temple in the New Testament. So in terms of the Savior building a better temple, what's that mean? Well, listen to the way Jesus talks about himself in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when Jesus came into the world, he was coming as the temple. Jesus was bringing God's presence with him. Jesus is the temple. That's why he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was the temple, the new temple. But see, in the New Testament, it's not just Jesus that's referred to as a temple. 
Listen to the way that Paul speaks about the individual Christian. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So when someone's connected to Jesus through faith in him, when somebody becomes a Christian, they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of them. Just like the temple had God's presence, the individual Christian has God's presence through the Spirit. So the individual Christian is a temple. But the New Testament, it goes even further than that. There's a corporate experience for God's people where they get to experience God's presence in, in even a more unique way as they're gathered together into churches. But see, whereas in the Old Testament, that happened in the temple, listen to where it happens under the new covenant in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul's talking to the members of the Ephesian church about how they've been brought together as a church body. Listen to what he says. He says, you all are members of the household of, of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so, so if you're a Christian, then you've got God's Spirit living inside of you. But then you also get to experience the presence of God in a unique way when we all gather together. And then corporately, we're a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, we are a temple. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, when he tells the church to come together to do the things that the Lord commands us to do, you remember he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we all have the spirit of the Lord all the time, right? He dwells inside of you as a Christian, but in a unique way, corporately, we get to experience the spirit together. The church, the church corporately is a holy temple in the Lord. So, so see, the Old Testament temple, it was always pointing to something much better, to a much greater temple. The, the true temple is Jesus Christ, who brings God's presence to us, and then gives us the presence of God's Spirit who lives inside of us, and, and then who dwells among us corporately as a church. And see, one day, all of that will culminate and climax when God transforms the world to be a, a place of, a, of, his, of his presence fully. He turns the entire world into his temple. So talking about heaven after Jesus comes back, here's what Revelation 21 verse 2 says. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So heaven is God's dwelling place coming down so his children can have his full presence for eternity. See, that's how the problem is resolved. We lost God's presence. Through Christ, he brings his presence back to us. And then the entire world becomes God's temple. That's why in Revelation, we're told there's no temple in the new heavens and the new earth, because all of the earth is like God's temple with his children there with him for all eternity. Verse 12 in our passage, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So it takes a priest king to, to create a situation in which sinners like us get God's full presence. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Well, as we close, what are we supposed to do with this truth? 
that Jesus is our priest king. Our passage gives us at least three applications. This is our final point. They're listed there in the, in the outline. First application, gather with the church to be reminded about Jesus. So he's our priest king. What do we do with that? Gather with the church to be reminded about Jesus. Look at verse 14 in our passage. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halim, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. So after God gives Zechariah the symbol of Joshua wearing the crown, he, he's going to have them take the crown off him and put it in the temple when it's finished. And, and it's going to be put there so that people can be reminded about the coming branch. So when they're in that earthly temple, they'll see that crown and they'll remember there's a better priest king who's coming to, to fully and finally save them and to deal with their sins. And, and we need that reminder too, right? Now, we're not looking forward to Jesus the way they were. We're, we're looking back. But we still need that reminder. We need that reminder about Christ. Because we all understand that this world, it makes our minds drift. So, so if we're just coasting spiritually, we'll find ourselves thinking about Jesus less and less. It's just the way it works in this world and in this sinful flesh. The way Peter says it in 2 Peter 1.13, he says, we need to be stirred up by way of reminder. So in Zechariah's day, they'd be reminded because they'd be in the temple and they'd see that crown. It'd remind them, oh yeah, a future priest king is coming. Okay, we don't have an earthly temple like that. So, so where do we go to be reminded? Well, one place we go is into the temple that Ephesians 2.19 talked about, that we just read. We go into the household of God. So gathering with your fellow church members on Sundays is one of the chief places you go and I go to be reminded about Jesus. It's set up that way by God to, to be a reminder. And, and we need to be reminded about who Jesus is and, and how special he is. And that he's done something no one else can do. That he's our priest and our king. In fact, our brothers and sisters reminded you about this truth even this morning. So let me read part of In Christ Alone that we all sang to one another a little while ago. This is one of the verses. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. That was your brothers and sisters reminding you that Jesus is your perfect priest. He's dealt with your sins. He's brought you close to the Lord through Christ. But then we ended with this verse, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. He's in charge of it. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. That was your brothers and sisters reminding you that Jesus is your perfect king. So you see, that's what Sundays are for. When we gather corporately, we're reminding one another about who Jesus is, that he's our only hope, that we need him. So gather with your church to be reminded about Jesus, our priest king. Second application, build up your brothers and sisters with this truth about Jesus. Look at the prophecy the Lord gives to Zechariah and Joshua in verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. The Lord's telling them, hey, I'm going to draw people from the entire world to come and worship me and know me. It's the same thing he said over in chapter 2, verse 11. There he says, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. 
and that's us, right? I don't think any of us is an ethnic Jew. We were called from far away to come and be part of God's people. Praise the Lord for it. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 tells us one of the chief reasons we were saved is so that you could help to build up the body of Christ, to help build the temple, the way that he talks about it here in verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. The way that you get to build the temple and I get to build it is by building up one another in our faith in Christ, praying for one another, sharing the word with one another, encouraging one another. That's the second thing that, that we're told here is that we're supposed to encourage to build up your brothers and sisters with this truth about Jesus. And then the final application, exercise an obedient faith because of this priest king. Look at verse 15. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the idea here is that the faith we have in God, the trust we place in Christ, our priest king, it's not just a talking faith, it's a living, active faith. It's a faith that truly does trust Jesus. And that's what the Lord's been calling people to do ever since the beginning of the book. Back in chapter one, verse three, the Lord says, return to me. And that's what God's calling his people to do in, in our final application, return to me, but believe my word and act on it. Exercise an obedient faith in our priest king. And Jesus, he merits that kind of faith, doesn't he? he? He's worth it. No other king could perfectly build up God's people and do good to us and protect us, but Jesus can. And, and no other priest could fully cover our sins and get us into God's presence for eternity, but Jesus can. Back in chapter four, we, we saw that for the reinstitution of the earthly temple, God's gonna use these two, these two different people. You remember the two olive trees, Joshua and Zerubbabel, a priest and a king. But see, they were simply pointing ahead to the one person, the branch, who unifies these two offices in himself. Praise God for our eternal priest king. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for Jesus who unites these offices perfectly in himself. We know that both are absolutely indispensable. Father, if, if we simply had a priest, then he could get sinners to you but he couldn't keep us there. He couldn't preserve us and protect us and build us. That's what a king does. And if we simply had a king, then he could build a way to get to you, but none of us would take it. None of us could take it because there's no priest to cover our sins. Father, we marvel at your word. Looking back and seeing you developed those officers in Old Testament Israel to point ahead to the one who's better than any of those individual priests and kings to the one who has united those two offices in himself for our good to provide salvation for sinners like us. We're so thankful for Jesus. We pray you would grow in us more and more marveling at how good and big and great Christ is for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.